follow our teachers out and they will show you where the classes are, pick them up when we're all done. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hope that didn't happen to you on the way into service today. I'm sure as uh, the construction begins on Greenview, that might be the, the uh, temptation. So uh, allow love to rule. That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you're new with us this morning, we've turned our attention to Paul's instructions to the church on spiritual gifts, in particular, conduct in the church. We started really in chapter 12, working our way all the way through chapter 14, verse 39, which has to do with what goes on when we meet. And Paul is taking that into his attention as he is dealing with things in the Corinthian church. God's plan for a healthy church is how we've labeled these passages from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They deal with a lot of negative things, some things, some trouble in the church that continue to plague the church today. And so they're either uh, a, a prophylactic or they are a corrective, one, one of the two, to help the church do what it's supposed to do and bear fruit. Picking up today in verse 1 of chapter 13, it's our fifth outline point, the love of the Spirit. Paul's covered a number of things as we've worked our way through. It's been a very rich study for us. If your interaction with me is any indication of that, number one, we saw the test of the Spirit. How can we know? How can they know what's going on there in their church is actually of the Spirit? And so Paul gave them a couple of ways that they could test that. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Then secondly, we saw the gifts of the Spirit. It's not exhaustive, but Paul gave a list of gifts that are manifest by the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. We started there in verse 4, all the way through verse 11. Then we saw the unity of the Spirit, how God takes all those things, all that diversity, and puts that together and makes uh, that work inside the local church to make the body have what it needs to have now and what it needs to have in the future. God is actively involved. We're going to see that again reinforced. Paul continually comes back to that to help them understand this is God is active, uh, the active way he's involved in the church uh, back in the first church, uh, in the first century, he's still actively involved today. Then we saw the variety of the Spirit, and we saw that was verse 27 through verse 30. We finished that up last time, and now we've come to this fifth point, the love of the Spirit, really starting in verse 31 of chapter 12 all the way through verse 13 of chapter 13. On November 12, 1996, Alvin Strait died of a heart ailment, but his legacy of love will be remembered uh, for generations to come. During the summer of 1994, Alvin was age 74 and unable to drive because of his poor eyesight. His brother Henry had suffered a stroke and Alvin desperately wanted to go and see him. As Alvin sized up his options, he decided his only mode of transportation was going to be his riding lawnmower. True story, so he set off in early July from his home in Iowa. He attached a trailer to his lawnmower to carry gasoline, clothes, food, and camping gear, and in mid-August, he reached his brother's house in Blue River, Wisconsin. The 74-year-old man traveled 240 miles on a lawnmower to infer, affirm his love and his concern for his brother. And such love will not soon be forgotten during his funeral procession. True story, a family member drove a lawnmower with a trailer from the church to the gravesite. Just to remind that little town of, a love, of the love of one man. We're going to talk about love today. We're really just going to get our feet wet in chapter 13. We're going to introduce this next section as is our habit, and we are going to look at love as our topic today. Let's read our passage today, 13 verses so full of important principles for the Corinthian church and for every church since that time. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, 
If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5, Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away, if there are tongues, they will cease, if there is knowledge, it will be done away, verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three but the greatest of these is love. Now, just to review just a little bit, because it's been three weeks since we've been in this study, as we went through verses 21 through 27, uh, Paul is dealing with the unity of the Spirit. And we saw in verse 21, back up there just a little bit, because it really sets this, the groundwork for where we're going to be today. He's addressing the pride and arrogance that really continue to manifest itself in this church. In verse 21, he says this, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And, and really, as you read that, just you can see the attitude he's addressing. You can see the conversations that people had. It's really difficult. As I was looking at this again this week and just thinking about, you know, Paul wouldn't have said that if that hadn't been said. There's lots of stuff that gets said in church that shouldn't get said among people. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So he's addressing attitude. He's addressing conversations, no doubt. As we saw, the Holy Spirit's principle here that Paul illustrates for us is don't overestimate your own importance. Have a correct view of your value, both in its importance and in its part of the whole in the church. Verse 22, verse 22, and then he says this, On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. We saw the Holy Spirit's next principle was this, the parts that don't seem too important are indispensable. And the body can't do without them. So the ones that are kind of being demeaned, the ones that are th people are thinking aren't that important, aren't that big a deal, they are a big deal. And then he goes a, a step further and he addresses their pride and he says in verse 23 and 24, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. Just talking about parts that you don't really want people to see, parts that you're trying to address so that they are less noticeable. And then we see our less presentable members, that's probably the parts that nobody's supposed to see and those things are supposed to be keep covered become much more presentable because we know how to do that. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. And really, he's like this. You, you know, you should be able to connect the dots with your own wardrobe. The way that you dress yourself, the way that you take care of yourself, the way that you cover things that should be covered in your modesty, the way that you take care of parts that don't look as good as they possibly could. You do that, he says, in the same way, the general principle here is this. The parts of the body of Christ nobody sees, then, according to Paul, should be given special honor or attention, just like people do with those parts of their physical body. And the idea there is really there should be gratitude, there should be thankfulness, there should be respect, gracious attention to the gifts that function 
underneath the radar that nobody really is noticing, but Paul says are indispensable. And I pointed out to you when we went through this passage that Paul doesn't use those same words, indispensable, when he talks about the parts that are presentable. So parts everybody sees, you can do without a little bit. But the parts that are indispensable, those parts that need covering, those parts that need protection, those parts you can't do without. And Paul says they are indispensable to the work of the body. So there should be some gratitude, some thankfulness, some respect, gracious attention. Then verse 24 says, Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So there's more importance there to things that are covered, things that are not nobody sees. Okay, so that there may be no division in the body, but there, that the members may have the same care for one another. Again, we see then this next principle that God is actively involved in making sure every gift is recognized. And we went through all of that, and we looked at a lot of passages that have to do with the first uh, being last, last being first, and God recognizing those who are servants. And so a very, very common theme in the Scripture. And so Paul's just bringing out something that's very well known about how God functions in this upside-down kingdom of the things that we think are really important are on the bottom, and the things that God thinks are really important are on the top, and that's really switched in our, uh, the way we would evaluate it. Now, Paul says in verse 26, he says this, And then if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, verse 27, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So you're a body. If, if one part of the body is affected in some way, every part is affected, everyone, and you should know it. It's how the physical body is, how the spiritual body should work. So he's just giving some pointers as he looks at the physical body as the example what goes on in the body affects everyone. We should be concerned about it. We should be rejoicing with it, all that kind of stuff. And we gave you lots of illustrations for all of that. Now, look at verse 28. It's a variety of the Spirit. Verse 28 says this, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So he numbers the first three, then he just drops the numbers, and he says, Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And just that principle that Paul is building on from his previous statements is what God has established in the past, is now involved in now is the current reality of the church. God is involved with the placing of the gifts inside the church. He starts initially with offices, which would manifest gifts. Then he just moves into the gifts themselves. And it's, I think it's important that he puts tongues at the end because that's where he's going to have his trouble as he moves into chapter 14. They've evaluated that as most important. Paul's evaluating it as, in this order, the last one. And he's going to talk about that extensively in chapter 14. And then Paul proceeds to list some of the parts of the body of Christ and remember, he's already done so, so he continues to act in, on his choices in the past, and, in, and, and that's the present reality of the church. That's God acting inside the church and its needs. Now let's look at the next part of this very rich verse. He says this. He says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And we saw the principle here is this. People don't choose these gifts. God appoints them. You're not waiting around for, to get some kind of gift so that you can bless the church. That isn't your choice. God's appointed it in the past. He makes it manifest in the church. He continues to work in the church to give it what it needs. And then Paul wants them to recognize God's sovereignty in all this diversity. So he says this in verse 29, are all, all are not apostles, are they? And the answer, of course, is no. All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Now, the common denominator in all those things of course, he didn't say, all do not help, do they? All do not give, do they? All do not have faith, do they? He's, man, he, he's, he's emphasizing for a negative effect all the showy gifts, right? Now, all don't have those, do they? And they know this, okay? Not all of them have, uh, not all of them are prophets, not all of them are teachers, not all of them are apostles. Not, they don't all work miracles. In other words, Paul says, if the church was set up like you wanted it to be, that would be a huge mess. He says, look at it, it's not like that, all right? 
God's already set it up just as he desired for his own purpose, for his own glory, to show that the church is alive and is a proper picture of Christ's physical body on earth representing all the parts that are needed to be alive. Now, you just kind of put that in, you know, right into your own life. God's called some of you to be teachers. He's called some of you with the gift of helps. He's called some of you and given you the gift of wisdom. He's called some of you with the gift of administration. He's called some of you with the gift of mercy showing, and some with the gift of giving, and some with the gift of discernment, and some with the gift of service, and some with the gift of faith. And he's given that in proportion to faith, as we saw in Romans chapter 12, remember? In proportion to faith, and there's various kinds of ministries and various kinds of outcomes. Why? Because all this different background, and you can't line everybody up and say, okay, everybody who's a teacher is up here, they're all going to be exactly alike. Okay, Daniel has a gift of teaching, as do I, but we're not the same. And we have different ministries and different outcomes. And many of you also have gifts of teaching and gifts of administration. And although we share some of those gifts, we don't all look alike because God gives it in proportion to the faith. And then it is exercised in different ministries. And those various ministries are the ones the church needs. See, so when people are not active, when you're disengaging from the church, you remove your gift set from the church. The church has needs that you can meet that aren't being met. And the church isn't representing Christ's body alive. It's representing Christ's body with some problems. Spiritual MS. Remember we talked about that. Where some parts aren't reacting like they're supposed to. And so we find that we have to organize extensively in the church. Why? So we can organize around parts of the body that aren't doing anything. They aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Okay, we've got a wheelchair in some places because sometimes the legs aren't working, you know? And uh, prosthesis in some places because that hand won't do what it's supposed to do. You see, that's how the church works now, but it's not working like it's supposed to work. And so Paul just, again, gives this um, very clear definition of what the body of Christ looks like and how it's supposed to act. You're the hands, you're the feet, you're the eyes, the ears, the internal parts, the unseen parts, the unseemly parts, all those parts. It's all him. It's all sovereign. It's all done. It's all for the common good. God's already placed it like he sees fit. So if you're here or wherever, okay, it includes all the churches, of course, but if you're here, you've got a place that you can serve. It's integral. It's important. It has impact. So you can't come away from that, I think. You know, in the Corinthian church, there were some people really feeling like they didn't have much to give because everybody wanted these showy gifts. And so Paul says, listen, those are not indispensable, but the ones that work underneath, those are indispensable. Hard to function without a pancreas. Hard to function without a bladder. It's hard to function without lungs. It's hard to function without parts of your body that have to be protected, but if they don't work, you're not going to show a live person going on there. Okay? So very important. Okay? Now look at verse 31. This is very important. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Paul says, listen, God's sovereign in all of this. And you're standing around. He's talking to the church there in Corinth, expounding on how great the showy gifts are. Some of you, and some of you, and we saw this early, are being fooled by imitation gifts. They're not even real gifts. We're going to see that in chapter 14. Up until now, many of you have thought that the showy gifts were all that was really needed. And I've made it clear to you, Paul says, that the ones that are greater are the ones you don't even see. They're imperative. So change your thinking. That's the idea. The, th the gifts that you think are great aren't great and earnestly desire. Zelote, present active imperative. Paul's giving a command, earnestly desire. By implication, he's saying, stop chasing after your pride, stop chasing after your arrogance. Implicitly, he's saying, be zealous in your desire for the right gifts. God is sovereign. He's given the church what she needs. Get your focus off the foolish things, the imitation things, onto the right things, God's diversity and his unity in Christ's body. You've got some gifts. 
begin to plug in. Correct your thinking, Paul says. Focus on what's important, what this whole thing of spiritual giftedness is all about. And then Paul concludes this section with a statement that really is the bridge to this next focus we're going to have, and that's why we went through this, okay? So he says this, And I show you, Paul says, a still more excellent way. What was the way they were doing it? No unity, no sense of diversity, everybody seeking the same gift, no sense of sovereignty, I'm waiting on a gift, still there and active in the church today. People doing this in some churches, I'm waiting on this gift, I'm waiting on the second work of the Holy Spirit, he's going to bless me and then I'm going to bless the church. See, all this thing is all fabricated, the entire thing made up. No sovereignty, not willing to accept God's plan. So Paul says, I'm going to sh- I'm showing you an excellent way, unity, diversity, sovereignty, harmony. I'm trying to show you a more excellent way, and I'm not done yet, see. I'm going to show you that the path of the whole plan of the church, ministering for the common good, is the path of love. That is, he says, and we're going to see the more excellent way. Now, just a few minutes ago, we read the passage, 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage that's really well known. It's taught all by itself as a freestanding passage. It's used in weddings, it's used in counseling, and certainly it can stand up to that scrutiny as it just kind of pulls out from the passage that we're, where it's found and we can, we can put it out there and it will stand up to that. Uh, it is its own package, if you will. But the real power of this passage is found when it's connected in context then. A church full of people with no sense of unity, no sense of diversity, everybody was seeking the same gift, no sense of sovereignty, not willing to accept God's plan, waiting on some other stuff, waiting on some other work, whatever. Imitation gifts, all that kind of stuff, see. Those with showy gifts with an overestimated opinion of their own worth, those without the showy gifts, devaluating their importance in the body. That's the context, okay? So Paul's dealt with these things, and now he's going to show them the basis for the use of all the gifts and the real solution to these issues that are plaguing the church. In other words, a more excellent way than coveting the showy gifts is being content with the one you have. A more excellent way than lording it over somebody because you happen to have the gift of speaking or teaching or whatever, or languages. A more excellent way than you know, being, uh, being proud is to be loving. And that's what he's going to talk about in 13 as he describes, really in beautiful language, the more excellent way, which is love. And did you know that as Paul talks about this, did you know that's based on a commandment, right? You did know that. John chapter 13, verse 34, right? That's the command. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And just by way of a quick survey, I'm going to put a few down there, and I'll let you go ahead and and write some of these down. (coughs) But did you know it's really useful, love? 1 Peter 4.8 says that it covers the faults of others. Did you know that? Love covers the faults of others. If you're having trouble covering other people's faults, try love. It works. Hebrews 6.10 says it ministers to the needs of others. If you have real love, you'll see what the needs are, and you'll be able to minister to them. Colossians 3.13, get this. It forgives injuries. Real love works. It's a miracle cure. If you're constantly hanging on to injuries somebody else has done to you, did you know if you actually have love, it will cure that. Did you know? It forgives the needs of others. It forgives the, the injuries of others. Colossians 3.14, we're supposed to put it on. 1 Corinthians 14.1, we're supposed to follow after it. These are all commands, see? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's amazing, really. It's, it's an amazing cure and a balm for the church. 
You having trouble forgiving somebody? Put on love. You'll be able to do it. You have, you have problems picking out the faults of other people? Put on love. It's going to take care of that problem for you. Believers are supposed to abound in it. They're supposed to continue in it. Be sincere in it. Provoke one another to it. All love. Be sincere in your love. And provoke it in one another. See? It should be exhibited, it says, towards saints. 1 Peter 2.17. Towards ministers. I'll take it. Towards our families. Towards strangers. Towards enemies. All men. It's a command. So Paul's basing this instruction on a command from Jesus. A new command I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, you also love one another. It's not even optional, see. It's not how, what's the least you'll take kind of thing. You know, is this level of love okay? Well, if it's not covering the faults of others, if it's not forgiving the injuries of others, no. If you're not putting it on and wearing it, no, it's not a high enough level. If you're not following after it, no, that's not it. That won't do it. If it's not ministering to the needs of other people, nope, you haven't got to the right level. If you're not abounding in it, continuing in it, and being sincere in it and provoking one another to it, nope, that's not the minimum requirement. Warren Wiersbe says this, I love this, quote, love is the lubrication between believers as we work together, end quote. That's pretty accurate, isn't it? I love that. In the course of ministry, there's opportunity for friction. That's not a new newsflash for anybody, is it? Different personalities, different backgrounds, different gifts, different ministries, different outcomes, misunderstandings, offenses taken, offenses given, immaturity, carnality, authority, and submission, all that stuff. All that stuff is the possibility for friction. And love is the lubricant between it. See. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3.12. He says this, so as those who have been chosen of God. So who, who's the audience? Believers, right? If you're born again, you have been chosen by God. That's one of the ways that you're labeled. God's chosen. He picked you. He did not choose him. He chose you. Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Just pick a few. Use them in your home this week, all right? Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Of course, this is supposed to be applied in the church. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. That covers a lot of potential friction, doesn't it? If you have a complaint against someone. And other lubricants are, you know, heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Along with this. Just as the Lord forgave you, should you also forgive one another. And then this one, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is a lubricant between believers and ministry. Love has hands and love has feet. Love isn't sentimentality. Love isn't just this warm, fuzzy feeling that you're supposed to feel towards somebody else. See. So the more excellent way, then, Paul's talking about isn't some new way, is it? but the way he undoubtedly already instructed them while he was there with them as their pastor. There's no question he went through all of this, right? 18 months with Paul, I'm sure he covered it. Long sermons Paul was used to, he would have covered lots of this ground already. But as in other areas that we've seen, he returns to this topic 
and in the process is carried along by the Holy Spirit to pen perhaps the strongest and the deepest thing he's ever written. Chapter is not a detour, as some have thought. It's essential to his argument. He's not finished with gifts because he has a lot to say about them in chapter 14, and he's going to mention them in almost every verse as we go through chapter 13. But in order for them to operate, they have to operate within the dynamic of love for one another. And really, catch this, beloved, as we look at the more excellent way, it really is the hinge that connects chapter 12 and chapter 14. It's the main issue in order to understand Paul's teaching on spiritual life. Why do I say that? All right. Catch these and follow this, follow this logic with me, if you would. The truly spiritual life is the only life in which spiritual gifts can operate correctly. True? I'll say it again. The truly spiritual life is the only life in which spiritual gifts can operate correctly. Is that true? That's true. Okay. And when it comes right down to it, we saw that a genuine spiritual life is not necessarily manifested by what appear to be spiritual gifts. That's also true, correct? Because we see that in the church today. We see false gifts manifested. That doesn't mean you're spiritual, does it? And in the first century church in Corinth, there were false gifts manifested, people, people uh, being arrogant about speaking gifts and upfront gifts. So we know that just because you have a spiritual gift doesn't mean that you're spiritual, correct? That's why Paul said, listen to what they say. Who's being glorified when they talk? Paul just had some litmus tests. He could say, okay, dip this in the stream of their thought and the stream of their talk, and when it comes back, you'll know what's actually going on. But the bottom line, these two things are true. Truly spiritual life is the only life in which spiritual gifts can operate correctly. And when it comes right down to it, the indication of a spiritual gift is not necessarily spiritual person, okay? It's really hard to determine that by a spiritual gift. Now, I want to put a verse up there, and this is going to be a good illustration for the point we need to make, okay? Paul says this in Galatians. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Pause right there. And then he's going to go on. He's going to list some of the deeds of the flesh that those who are controlled by the flesh do. Things like idolatry in verse 20, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I have forewarned you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's the course of your life, it marks your life on a regular basis. This is how you live. Paul says, listen, those types of things are walking according to the flesh. If that marks your life, is that the indicating factors of your life, you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom, okay? Not that you can't dip into those things as a believer. You might have enmity. You might be a strife causer, Okay, you might have an outburst of anger. You might be disputing dissensions. You might have factions. Those things are sinful. Paul addresses them with First Corinthian church. Okay, but then catch this part, verse twenty-two. Okay, he says this. But the fruit of the spirit, what's the first fruit listed, beloved? Love, and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse twenty-four. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Now, how did that happen? You got credit, right? You got credit for Christ's crucifixion on the cross, and then you're actively involved with your will. So positionally, you've crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Practically, is that always true in your life? Have you always crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? No, because you still live in a flesh that has appetite. And we talk about this all the time. Okay, so that's the battle between the new you and the flesh that desires the old stuff. 
you're in a new pasture. Remember, we talked about this in Romans 6. And you have a new master, but the old master yells across the fence and says, don't you want to? And you have flesh that desires it, okay? So practically, it's hard to identify that sometimes. Positionally, you have crucified the flesh with the passions and desires. Now, verse 24. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, let's answer a couple of the things we just talked about, okay? A truly Spirit-controlled person isn't made manifest by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We said that already, okay? Not necessarily. I'm sorry, let's say this again. Truly spirit, a true spiritual life is the only life in which spiritual gifts can operate correctly. That's true. When it comes right down to it, we saw genuine spiritual life is not necessarily manifested by spiritual gifts. So, here it is. A true spiritual controlled person isn't made manifest by the gifts of the Spirit. How, do you truly, how is a truly spiritual person made evident? How? According to that verse we just read, how is a truly, how is a truly spiritual person made evident? Right? That's how a truly spiritual person is made evident. The fruit of the Spirit. Not some spiritual gift, because it's really hard to tell if they're spiritual. They may be doing something in the flesh, right? The truly spiritual person is made manifest and made evident by the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then catch this, okay? The gifts of the Spirit are functioning in the flesh, okay? You're not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are functioning in the flesh. Why? Because the first fruit of the Spirit is... Love. And what's the, what's the hinge point between all the spiritual gifts and its action in the church? It's only love, isn't it? It has to function in that environment. So, as the believer walks in the Spirit, and as a footnote, when you do that, you won't carry out the fleshly desires like we've seen in Corinth already. The misuse of spiritual gifts and, and the attitudes that were prevalent there, jealousy and strife and envy and arrogance. So you're walking in the Spirit, you won't see that, okay? The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, and out of the fruit of the Spirit come the gifts of the Spirit operating in the power of the Spirit. Did you catch that? Okay. Out of the fruit of the Spirit come the gifts of the Spirit operating in the power of the Spirit. That's the only way it can operate. And that, you have to understand it that way because if love is, if love is the key and it's, the spiritual, it's a spiritual fruit, then you have to be manifesting it, don't you? And if you're not manifesting spiritual fruit, then whatever spiritual gifts you think you're manifesting, you're just doing it in the flesh. And that was the problem in Corinth, and that's the problem in the church today. See, People have the gift of this or the gift of that, but they're not doing it in love. They're not responding because of love. And so they're struggling, and the church struggles because the gifts aren't manifested like they're supposed to be. And so tying Paul's teaching together, it seems clear then, if we do not have the fruit of the Spirit manifest, then if love isn't manifested, start with that one. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and a host of other passages that we looked at earlier, consider that the greatest of the spiritual fruit. What's the greatest of the spiritual fruit, beloved? Love. It is the greatest. And 1 Corinthians 13, 13 makes that clear. It is the first one listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? So catch this. Mark this, beloved. If there is no love there, then we can say that anything that is happening is happening without the fruit of the Spirit. So the believer isn't walking by the Spirit. And if that's happening apart from walking in the Spirit, like we just saw in Galatians 5.25, and if it's being done apart from walking in the Spirit, then it's being done in the power of the flesh. And as we will see, that is at best empty. That's what we're going to see in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 13. Empty of benefit, a big fat zero sum. And it can also be carnal and it can also be counterfeit. 
So it just goes downhill from there. But it can be empty. You can have all these gifts. And if you're not manifesting it in love, it's just a big zero, according to the Lord's evaluation of it. And that's otherwise known, just to tie some verses together in 1 Corinthians 3.12, as wood, hay, and stubble. Okay? Let's just connect all these passages together. You may have spiritual gifts. If you're not manifesting them in love, then it's going to give you a big fat zero. It may also be carnal and imitation gifts, and you're building with wood and hay and stubble on the foundation of Christ. And that's the key to understanding this passage in context. It's much more than a standalone study for marriage counseling. I mean, it's good, but it's much more than that, okay? It's much more than just a passage you want to read in the middle of your wedding ceremony. It's more than that kind of thing. It's more than just a standalone. It can stand up to it, but it's way more than that. The church can't operate apart from the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit don't operate correctly in the flesh. And so Paul refreshes their memory of all of this. Here are the Corinthians with all these gifts of the Spirit. And according to chapter 1, they didn't lack any. And many of them are trying to use them without the fruit of the Spirit. So they're not being controlled by the Spirit. So what's being done is being done in the flesh. That's precisely the problem he's having in Corinth. All these things are being done in the Spirit. Who, with a gift of teaching or whatever, or prophecy or whatever, who would do that and then belittle someone who didn't have it, see? I mean, just think about that whole process. How is that spiritual? Is that being manifest in love? Not a chance. But that's exactly the kind of conversations Paul is addressing here, see? Precisely. So Paul says, you know, when you're trying to operate your spiritual gifts without the fruit of the Spirit, not being controlled by the Spirit, so what's being done is being done in the flesh. And Paul says, when it's all done, you have nothing. Nothing. So you see that love environment is everything. Thanks, Michael. It can be one of the most important indicating factors that what's being done won't be burned up, beloved. Okay? Love allows the gifts of the Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit designed them to do. That's our intro. Okay, that sets the stage for this passage. It's very important in its context. Now let's go back and dig into the first three verses. First Corinthians chapter 13, uh, 1 through 3. Let's do that. Read there with me if you would. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Doesn't sound like that's too effective, does it? Kind of sounds like it's irritating to me. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. So now we have some other things going on there, right? Spiritual gifts that are actually given by the Spirit. And have all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. So you've got a bunch of gifts lined up right there. We're going to go back and look more uh, intimately at this later. Understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, and if I give, big fat zero, I'm nothing. Listen, and we're going to look at this, but I have the gift of prophecy. So I can tell, I can, I can foretell, I can tell what's going on, I can foretell, put it out there, what God has already said, and do it clearly. I know mysteries, so I can discern things that were hidden. I have all knowledge, see. Paul says, do you have those things? You have faith so as to remove mountains. You have the exact faith Jesus said you could have. Faith that believes that God is powerful and can do whatever he wants and he does what he pleases and he shows what he wants to do and you pray that in and it happens. If you have that kind of faith, 
This is not bad things, okay? These are good things. But I don't have love. I'm nothing. Right? I can't accomplish anything apart from love. It's a zero. Zero sum. And if I give all my possessions to feed the, the poor, not just your tithe or not just your tenth or whatever you do or the portion that you decide you're going to give, I'm going to give all my possessions to feed the poor. Okay? And I surrender my body to be burned right up until a personal sacrifice, whatever it is. But I don't have love. It profits me nothing. No credit. Wood, hay, stubble. That's pretty important, don't you think? You see, all the gifts of the Spirit and the entire sum of our activities mean nothing without the fruit of the Spirit, love. Love must be the foundation. Love must be the motivation. Love must be the atmosphere in the life of the believer for any of those other things to be of any use. See? According to Paul, it's, it is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit without spirituality. We've already seen that. Because as we noticed before, spiritual gifts don't necessarily indicate spirituality. So catch this. It's possible then, and here's where it has to come right into your lap, okay? It's possible to do all this work and seem very spiritual to everyone around you. You can hold all these positions and get a lot of things done, accomplish projects, whatever it might be, but love is the litmus test, see? It's not just physical work. God does not want us running around doing our own thing. And I think we can understand that. But here's the thing, beloved. It's just really hard to identify that in your own life, isn't it? You may be a real doer. You may be super organized. And you can put together a package and you can make sure it happens in the church. Okay? You may be one of those kinds of people. You may have the administrative spiritual gift of administration. You may be able to really put the order together and make it all happen. But according to this passage, if you're not doing that in love, that is a big fat zero sum. And you may be able to accomplish all these tasks. You're a real doer. You're a nuts and bolts kind of person. You can dot every I and cross every T and make sure everything's ready to turn in. And it's all ready to go. And without love, it's nothing. See? It's just really hard to identify that in our own lives. Especially if that's how we've been used to operating. Now let's look at the word love here. And it's going to carry us to the end. Okay? And we're going to wrap up. Verse 1 says this. Okay? If, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. Let's pause right there. And that's the Greek noun, agape. And you've heard this before, I'm sure, a hundred times if you've been in church. It is important to note, though, as you see that Greek noun, agape, it's always defined by what it does. Okay? And those definitions are all verbs. And we're going to see this as we move through. This isn't a romantic love. It's not sexual love. It's not emotional love. It's the love of self-sacrifice. That's what we're going to see all the way through here. And I'm going to give you some examples here so you can stand on a sure foundation. There is no use of agape without action. No use. It's not just some sentiment. It's connected to action. There may be a feeling. There may be an emotion of love when action occurs, which is why this is part of the homework I give to couples who are in trouble. We go through this and they have homework to do and they don't tell each other what they're supposed to do, but they have to act on love. They have to love, the love of self-sacrifice has to happen in the house and the guy has to write down a bunch of times when he did it, when he thought he was doing it. And then we come back and we exchange when we get back in the office. So the feeling of love and the idea there is if we act on what the scripture says, what will be generated then is also the warmness of love and the feeling of love that we enjoy so much. But love is actually an action. So 
some feeling and emotion come when the action occurs, but the main thing is the action. Now, 1 John 4.10 gives us a great foundation. There's a bunch of places we could turn. This is one that I personally like because it's just a direct one-to-one look at it. In this is love, so it's pretty clear. So he's going to make a definition for us, isn't he? He's going to define it, how it works. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and then look at this part, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you want to look at a picture of love, a snapshot of how love works? Here it is. Defining this in his love expressed from God to us, he sent his son to make our sin payment. That's love from God to us. He sent his son to make our sin payment. Now, so when you bring then, if you just use this example, and just kind of bear with me here, if you bring 1 Corinthians 13.4 into this understanding, look there in 1 Corinthians 13.4. It says this, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. So let's just do it exactly like uh, 1 John 4.10, because this is love, okay? So let's just kind of plug it in. You could transplant it, the wording, here it is. In this is love expressed to others, I overlook the faults and extend patience. If you want to know what love looks like in the church, that's what it's going to look like. In this is love expressed, I overlook faults and I extend patience. In this is love expressed to others, I actively do works of kindness for them. In this is love expressed to others, I affirm that I trust them. In this is love expressed to others, I refuse to use comments that exalt myself. In this is love expressed to others, I display an attitude of humility. If we want to do it like the scriptures do it, then we just say, okay, this, in this is love expressed, because love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love doesn't brag, love isn't arrogant, and then we just plug those words in, okay? Now, we're going to come back there and look at that verse more in the future, but you can see where it's going. This is the only way spiritual gifts can operate inside those parameters, the word occurs 116 times in the New Testament alone, and Paul uses it 75 of those times. It's a pretty important topic for him. Now, I want us to look at one more passage that really shows the, love, the flow of love uh, and the work of the Spirit. Look with me at John 13, and it's going to take us to our, the end of our time together. So look at John 13. John 13, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. I think you're going to really see this. This is just, for me, this is uh, just one of those verses that has to be in the margin next to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world, you see where we are? To the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, let's just pause right there. You see love both times there. Now, uh, there are a number of meanings here uh, of he loved them to the end. Uh, it, it means he loved them to the uttermost or to the fullness. You might have uttermost there. I think the authorized has that. Or to the fullness or the completeness. He loved them as much as it is possible for Christ to love them. Perfect love. That's the understanding. He loved them as much as it is possible for Christ to love them. So that's a perfect love. We could talk a lot about that today, but a lot about that, but we're not going to do that today. But if you look um, after this comment, look at verses 3 and 4 then. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from, forth from God and was going back to God. So, in other words, just pause right there. He knew who he was. He knew his purpose. He knew his position. You know, he was submitting to God in everything. And so, what does he do? Verse 4, he gets up. So, after he said this, said this to them about love, and that he'd love them, um, 
He knew this in his mind. He loved them. He loved them fully. And so he knows who he is. He knows what his purpose is. He knows what he's supposed to do, his position. He's submitting to God and everything. And so he gets up, verse 4, he gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments. He takes a towel. He girds himself with it. Verse 5, then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, let's pause right there. That's love in action, isn't it? That is self-sacrificing love, isn't it? This is, this is the Messiah. This is the king of all uh, the universe. And he kneels down in front of his disciples' feet. And we've made the, made the comment before, shortly after they were arguing with who was going to be first in the kingdom. So it's a little embarrassing for them uh, because they were arguing about who's going to sit on the right hand and left hand and all that kind of stuff. And so he just gets down and he knows who he is. He knows he came from God. He knows what his purpose is, why he's there, what's going to happen. And then he's loved them with a perfect love. And he gets down and he just shows them self-sacrificing love. Now skip down to the passage we looked at earlier this morning, verse 34. It says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35 then, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pause right there. Now, what was the most recent example of how he loved them? We just back up to the passage we just read. He just got through what? Washing their feet. There's going to be another one, isn't there? Obviously, in just a few hours after this, right? He's going to go to the cross. The ultimate act of self-sacrifice. But right now, they and we get the message, don't we? I mean, he, lay, he kneeled down in front of them and he washed their feet. Very humble, very self-sacrificing act. He's going to go to another one and they're not expecting all of this and this is going to happen. It's going to be the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. But this is the love of self-sacrifice, is the love he's asking you to give, see? And people will know, read the world, see? By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have the love of self-sacrifice, right? A self-sacrificing love. That's how the world's going to identify you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you teach Sunday school. Not necessarily. You might be using your spiritual gift, but it might be in the flesh, right? By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you teach the church. Nope. By this will all men know you're my disciples if you work in the nursery and, and don't wash feet but other stuff, right? No. Not if you're not manifesting that in love, because it's a big fat zero at that point. But this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What kind of love? Self-sacrificing love. It's a fruit of the Spirit, the first one. It has to be manifest in your life, see? And so Jesus shows that. First stop of the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is at work in you, this will be your fruit. And you'll be able to minister your spiritual gifts to one another with effect and with reward. Now skip down to John 14, 21. Just go one chapter over. Just stick with me. We're skipping huge passages that we could just spend weeks on. But we want to make the, the, the point here. He who has my commandments, you see where we are, verse 21, and keeps them is the one who loves me. In other words, catch this, love then towards Jesus is the act of self-sacrifice of your will to do his will. Catch it? If you're going to show love back to Jesus, how are you going to do it? Self-sacrificing your will to do his will. Okay, here's what your commands are. I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what you want to do. That's, a, that's the act of self-sacrificing love towards Christ. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. It's very straightforward, isn't it? You can say you love me all day long, but if you don't do what I say, you're not doing the love of self-sacrifice, submitting your will to mine. So it's very consistent all the way through, see? The act of self-sacrifice. Again, verse 23. Look at John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So if anyone loves me, he's going to keep my word. Just 
Very straightforward. You're going to submit your, your will in an act of self-sacrifice on a regular basis. You're going to take up your cross. You're going to follow whatever, however you want to put it, whatever lingo you want to use. When it comes right down to it, it's an act of self-sacrifice, isn't it? Your obedience demonstrates your love. You know, 1 John 5, 3 really confirms that again. It's just amazing. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Just that little caveat. And it's not really, it's not a burden on you to do it. It's really in your best interest to, to follow my commands. But if you want to show the love of God, then keep His commands. And I think you get this. See, it's just so hard to identify whether we're doing it correctly in our own life. But as we're going to see, it's so imperative we have to come into chapter 13 with the right understanding. We have to wrestle with it and then get on top of it. And the only examples of this word agape are the examples of the ultimate act of sacrificing one's good for the good of someone else. That's how it works in your marriage. That's how it works in the church. That's how it works with your relationship to Christ. Now skip again for the last time to John 15, 12. Will you do that? Just flip over one, one uh, page. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Verse 13, Greater love hath no, man, hath no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Let's pause right there. And here, Jesus sets it up, doesn't he? He's already got down on his knees, and he's washed their filthy feet, and they aren't ready for this, and they're not going to understand it the next few days. It's going to take them a while to put it all together, isn't it? But you and I don't have that excuse, do we? We already know what's going to happen. They're on a linear timeline, and they're just kind of going along with this, the Last Supper, and Jesus washing their feet, and, and all this, and he says the rest of this stuff, and they're not, they're not onto it yet. It had been hidden from them. They didn't want to hear it. But we understand it, don't we? We understand what the greater love hath no man than this, than the man lays down his life for his friends. He's setting it all up. And you know what he's saying. And you know right now how he loved them, and how he loved you. And that's his call to you, see? God's love is demonstrated in an act of self-sacrifice. He sent his son. Jesus' love is demonstrated in an act of self-sacrifice. He went to the cross and made the payment for your sin. And your love is demonstrated that way too. Then he goes to verse 14 and he says this. After he just got through saying, greater love hath no one than this, then one lay down his life for his friends. Then verse 14 he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, you're demonstrating who you are by your obedience to me, and you're also showing your love to me, right? Submitting your will. So you're one of mine. And you can't obey his commands if you're not born again, so it only applies to those who know Christ. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. Now, just pause right there. Is true spirituality indicated by spiritual gifts? No. True spirituality is indicated by spiritual fruit. And the greatest of spiritual fruit is what? Love. And when you abide there, you're right where you need to be to do what God needs you to do and what the church needs to minister to its needs for the greater good. That's why he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. See? Is God answering the prayers of unspiritual people? No. Is he in the habit of using carnal people to accomplish eternal work of the kingdom? No. Everything spins on the chapter of 1 Corinthians because everything spins on spirituality. As Jesus says again, this I command you that you love one another. So he finishes the passage off that way. And if you love God, you're going to respond with self-sacrifice and love each other, see? And that's the key. 
And that's why it connects these two passages so clearly. And although it stands alone by itself, it is the most important thing we're going to read. Because everything in the church has to spin off of it. If you're going to build a spiritual house of gold and silver and costly stone, it's going to be in the environment of love, of self-sacrifice in your own life towards other people. That's the only way it's going to work. And it doesn't matter how great your gifts are or whether you're a fantastic teacher or you can really serve or you can meet needs or you give sacrificially. It makes no difference because if you don't do it in the atmosphere of love, it's accomplishing no good thing eternally and it's a zero sum for your spiritual house. It's wood, hay, and stubble. So it is everything, see. It's everything. It's just so hard to determine whether that's our attitude, but I think that's exactly what the Lord wants us to come away with today. Just take a look at yourself. And maybe the last week or, or maybe 10 weeks that you served, how did you do it? What was the attitude? And what were your thoughts? Because that's going to determine what was going on there, okay? Now, we're out of time, and I want to get Mike up here because he's going to give us a sum of what happened over in Romania. So here's the thing, okay? Next time, we're going to look at a few more passages where Jesus tells his disciples to love your enemies. <laughs> I love that. Because that really kind of makes a connection for us, okay? What? Self-sacrifice for our enemies? I mean, this is going to be really ugly if, you know, you, you're not on board with this whole love thing, okay? But this is, this is really enlightening, and I think we're going to enjoy it, okay? And this is very, there's a lot of freedom here, beloved, Okay? You're not responsible for the reciprocal love of somebody else. You're just responsible for self-sacrificing love towards them. And you put that in your marriage if you want. That's why I tell marriage couples, listen, you're not responsible for whether or not they reciprocate. You're only responsible for doing what you're supposed to do. And if they don't reciprocate, they've got the account to, go to God. And if you know, the man's not loving his wife in this self-sacrificing kind of way, that his prayers are hindered and he's having a really hard time in life, okay? But the bottom line is you're just responsible for doing it as you understand, the Lord has commanded you to do it. Not the minimum that you'll require. This is it. Self-sacrificing love covers the faults of others, forgives the faults of others. All that kind of stuff. If you're not doing that, it's not high enough, okay? But I think you understand. See, it's going to take to function correctly in the church and to build on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, costly stones. According to Paul, it really comes down to this issue. This is it, all right? Let's, cl let's close in prayer and we'll have Mike come up. Lord, we thank you today for a chance to be in your word. We're so grateful for it. We thank you for this particular passage, these 13 verses that are so powerful. They just lay waste all this ridiculous stuff that we do because we want people to think we're spiritual or, or effective or whatever. And it just really comes down to how we're doing it. It's the command given from Jesus, a new command, one he demonstrated to his disciples so clearly, one we understand absolutely. We understand it. Uh, as we look back on the long line of history, we understand what your son did. We understand what you did, Father, in giving your son to us. We understand what your son did in sacrificing his life as a payment for our sin. For this, we're so grateful. We understand what self-sacrifice looks like, how he demonstrated it to his disciples by washing their feet. We, we know how that can work. We're just so resistant to it because we're afraid it won't be reciprocated or somehow it's less. But we can't function with spiritual gifts without spiritual fruit. And the greatest of those spiritual fruit is the fruit of love. So form us new if you need to. Make us as we should be. Help us to be willing. And even in our own heart right now, say to you, we are willing to be formed in this spiritual fruit of love and have it be born in abundance on us and in our lives as an outpouring and an outspring of the time we spend in your word and in self-sacrificing our own desires to obey your commands. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and with, as we understand its importance with just a real desperate desire to come away with this above all things.
We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.